good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So let's read from Nehemiah 8, and we'll read from verse number 1, just down to the end of verse 6, as we look to God to bless his word to your hearts. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. And all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Urijah, and Elkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Melchiah, and Hashum, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Uh, chapter 7, and uh, the verse number 73, the end of that chapter, uh, brings us or brings our attention to the fact that all the people of Israel are dwelling in their own cities. Most of you will be familiar with the context here. Uh, there's been a season of captivity, but God has brought his people back to the land, and Nehemiah has the burden uh, to rebuild the walls for the defense and the welfare of the people of God. But at the end of chapter 7, we find them, and they're gathered together in their own cities. And that seemingly incidental detail opens our minds to marvel at the events of chapter 8. Because when you come to the beginning of chapter 8, you find all the people gather themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. We're told it is the, the seventh month, somewhere in the, in the fall or the autumn season, depending on where you're from. It's that time of year. It's around 444, 45 years before Christ. We're not reading an imaginary tale. We're reading about real people who come to a real place. To come before a real man to hear uh, the real and true word of God. The rebuilding of this nation at this time would not be based upon the foundation of bricks and mortar. We understand from chapter 2 that Nehemiah is a man who is seeking the welfare of the children of Israel. But as a godly, spiritually minded man, his desire is not to simply build bricks and mortar. He's not simply desirous to engage in the financial prosperity, but his desire is for the spiritual welfare of the people of God. And such welfare is not based upon bricks and mortar. Such welfare is based upon the foundation of the word of God. The New Testament church is founded upon truth 
Ephesians 2 tells us it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. A description of those who were under the Holy Ghost inspired to write scripture. And that is the foundation of the church with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The welfare. The welfare of God's people is always dependent upon where they place the word of God in their affairs. There is a direct relationship between how the word of God is viewed and revered and how people know and walk with God. When God's people revere the word, they then know what it is to walk with God, to walk in the fear of God, and to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Our denomination will go on with God, not upon the opinions of man, not even upon the traditions of man, but only upon the revelation of God. And so we see here the people who have a desire to hear the word. And that's really what I want to uh, draw our attention to. This is a time of, of great blessing. Look at the end of verse number 12. And again, they've, they've heard the word. They've been under the word. And it says there in 12, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And verse 17 ends with these words, And there was very great gladness. We want these seasons in our churches a day by day, month by month, year by year. We want to know God's blessing and God's favor. We want to rejoice in the Lord and to walk in the joy of the Lord. And as you see this chapter, there are, just, there are two features that I want to draw out and draw your attention to. Things that are true of the people here. Oh yes, under the sovereign grace of God. But things that the people are marked by. That I believe opens the way. Indeed, for thus joy and this blessing in the presence of God. And the first thing is, there is a desire for the word. They come in eagerness. They have a desire for the word. And I think it is significant. That is the people who bring the request to the scribe. We believe that Ezra again was a, a godly man. But the words are very deliberate. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And they spake unto Ezra to bring the book. What a desire that is for God's people to come together in the place of public worship, to be under the word, and they're all coming together. Bring us the book. Bring us the book. They have that desire for the word of God to be brought to their attention. Well, perhaps they recognize that they were not right with God. Perhaps they recognize that there was, there was things we dealt with. And they needed to hear from God. And thus they say, bring us the book. They gather and they ask. I believe this is a sign that God is at work amongst this people. And the result is a hungering for the reading and the preaching of the word of God. It's a hungering for the public declaration of God's word. You can think of the kingdom beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We know that those beatitudes, they're not a pathway to conversion. You don't walk up a ladder to get to God through those beatitudes. Rather, they are the description of the true follower of Christ. And the subjects of King Jesus are those who are marked by a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness. They desire the truth. It is that reality that, that reinforces the exhortation of Peter. You turn to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and the verse number 2. Where Peter tells his readers as newborn babes. Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. 
Peter's emphasis here is not so much on what is to be consumed, namely milk, but it is predominantly dealing with the matter of desire. I say that for, uh, for a couple of reasons, but one primary reason is that this text does not contradict other texts whereby God's people are encouraged to take meat. You might read this and think, well, what about the other references where God's people are rebuked for milk? And they're told they should be taking milk or meat. Like you, you can take, I can read a couple of verses for you. First Corinthians chapter 3 and the verse number uh, 2. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. And he just said to them that they are carnal, they are babes in Christ. And the presence of milk is a mark of their, of their babehood, if you like. They're not mature. And thus they are almost rebuked for still being on milk. You've got a similar thing in, in Hebrews chapter 5 in the verse number 12. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the organs of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And so again, you see that these two references, 1 Corinthians and Hebrews chapter 5, where again there's a, there's a sense in which the apostles are rebuking the people of God for their need for milk when they ought to be in, uh, enjoying meat. So how do you reconcile these things? Well, of course, uh, Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, uh, they are dealing with the matter of maturity. God's people ought not to be content with continually being in the basic things of truth. There ought to be a desire within our own hearts to, to grow and mature. We, we shouldn't stay in infanthood in the things of God. We should grow and develop unto that end. We, we must consume meat. And so what Peter is dealing with in his text, he is not, he is not in the sense dealing with the, the substance, although he does refer to it as the sincere milk of the word. It is the word that is sufficient to nourish. Everything you need is in that milk. That's what he's saying here, that the milk, that's got all you need. But his particular point is that they must desire the sincere milk of the word. And the word he's using is a, is a very strong word. And the same word is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and the verse number 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring. Those two words translating the same word. Earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. The longing we have for heaven itself. That same burning desire is the burning desire that we ought to have for the word of God. And so Peter is making the point that God's people, they must have this, this burning, longing and desire for the word of God. Like a newborn and their desire for milk. And those of you perhaps who have had children over the years, you can think back to 4 a.m., some evening or some early morning hour and you were three hours into your sleep and you were quite content and you hear this rumbling, murmuring in the, in the room beside you and you think to yourself, well, perhaps they'll just go over again. And before long they don't go over again. They, they wake up with a roar and the roar goes so loudly that they are desiring the milk. That they, they want to get that nourishment that they need at that time. And, and it's, that, it's that sense of desire and longing that as God's people ought to be true in our experience also. You see, later on, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 8, this people, they have a desire for the word. They have a strong longing to hear from God. Um, when you, again, when you look at Nehemiah 8 later on, you will see 
Later on in the chapter, the, the people come to the point where their hearts are broken in hearing the law. They haven't kept God's law. They hear the word of God. Their hearts are convicted. And they then go on later on to do the word of God. But the obedience and the conviction, it comes after they have this desire and longing. The sequence of events starts the desire for the word of God. We desire outward obedience. As parents, as pastors, our desire is that God's people, young and old alike, that they would walk uprightly and righteously before God. But such upright living begins when God gives his people a desire for the word. So you turn to Psalm 119, please. Let me just show you this and then we'll move on. Verse 9 and following Psalm 119. And you'll see in the early verses, as I verse 9 to 11, there is a subject of, of holiness. Uh, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Or verse number 10, oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Or verse 11, that I might not sin against thee. That, that's the outward, that's the external uh, performance of obedience to God. There's a cleansing. There's a, a staying, not a wandering away from God's path, but a, a staying in the straight path. There is a, a desire not to sin, not to transgress God's law, verse 11. But all of that outward arises in connection with what's true in verse 14 and verse 16, where the psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. Or verse 16, I will delight myself in thy statutes. And so... We want to think about outward obedience. We don't want to be hearers only. We want to be doers. But such determination to do the word of God arises in connection with the desire to hear the word of God. And we have to look sadly at the situation of churches. And we see the outward performance. We see a, a falling away from the paths of righteousness. We, we see our young people. They're, they're prepared to do things and be involved in things that, 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 that cause us to fear and to tremble. There's a moving away from the paths of righteousness. And it's directly related to a lack of desire to be under the word of God. People are content by and large to hear the word of God once the Lord's day. Once a week to be under the word of God. If I get a 30 minute sermon, then that'll do me for the week. And it's a reflection, is it not, of a lack of desire to be under the word. A lack of desire to hear the word. And therefore, it should not surprise us that that lack of desire is then reflected in a falling away in terms of obedience to God's paths. So there is in this chapter, there is a desire for the word. But there's also a second thing, and it is that the duty of right worship. Again, I debated over the D. I wanted two Ds, but I thought, well, will we have duty or will we have delight? So let's have both the duty and the delight of right worship. If blessing is to come, there will be a desire for the word of God. But there will also be a determination to do right in the worship of God. This time of blessing in Nehemiah chapter 8, it comes in the context of God-centered worship. Verse number 6 refers to that. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The preaching 
of God's word is itself a part of worship. It doesn't follow worship. It occurs very much as part of biblical worship. The entire gathering together in a public fashion. Yes, the word of God is placed there. Not as a follow on to worship. But as very much part of worship. And the worship here itself is interesting. Ezra's leading and the people are responding. There's a couple of things that, that come to mind. First of all, we should recognize that worship prepares the heart for the word. The worship of God is used by God. To prepare our hearts for the reception of the word. There's always conversations had regarding the form of our service. You Presbyterians, you always do it the same way. There is a reason for that. And our forefathers in our tradition have done it for centuries because they recognize that when God's people come together and they pray and they sing the praise of God, that God uses that to prepare their hearts to receive the word. It's part of God's methods regarding how God's people are blessed. And thus as we come to worship and prayer and song and such like things, then God is working in our souls that we then be in the right place to hear the word of God. One of the things that sadly is said by God's people, and we understand that as they come and they say, well, I got nothing out of that message. And the blame is always centered to the preacher. Sometimes it is our fault. Sometimes we're not prepared in heart. Sometimes we haven't prepared the sermon very well. We come hastily into the pulpit and we expect to get away with experience or, or how we did it in the past. But perhaps more often, the reason you, don't, you may get nothing out of the message, if the preacher is being faithful to the word, is because you gave nothing in worship before that. You were in the house of God. Everything took place as normal. But you were miles away. And you expect to be under the word then. And suddenly you get the blessing. So worship prepares the heart for the word. And in connection with that, the people themselves are active participants in worship. Again, this is something I think we should always uh, recognize. The people of God, they are not just observers. Watching Ezra or watching a preacher or anything else, they themselves are actively participating in the worship of God. Now the form of worship in the Old Testament is different than what we enjoy in the New. But the essence is the same. In those times, the Levites were the singers. We are all preaching to God and we all participate in, in the public singing. But there are other things, again, that indicate here the people of God being active in the worship. First of all, they publicly affirm their agreement with the worship uh, led by Ezra. Look at verse number six. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen. I remember one summer being in holidays in, in the south of England. And uh, again, my parents would always have tried to find a church in there that we could go and worship. And one time I we went to an Anglican church, uh, Church of England church, for those of you, an Episcopalian church. And it was a strange affair. Up and down, up and down. And often we had to respond audibly. I was probably 11, 12 years old. And I was sitting bemused and uh, they were responding and reading. 
They are responding in, in various ways to what was said from the pulpit. And we tend to frown upon that. Oh yes, you'll, you'll always get one or two in the, in the congregation and, and they're happy to, hallelujah and amen, and they're happy to do that sort of thing from the pulpit. But the rest just kind of sit there somewhat embarrassed by that. And so we come to the word of God. We examine the word of God and we see that consistently in the word of God, there is the public affirmation and agreement in the audible use of the amen. Not just in Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me, let me read to you some other words. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, you have the reading of the law of God. And 12 times in Deuteronomy 25, all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And it's in response to the curses. Verse 15, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image. And the people say, Amen. Let it be so. It is true. We shall be cursed if we make any graven or molten image. So the word of God is being read. And following the word of God, the people say, Amen. You've got First Chronicles chapter 16. And the verse number 7 where you have there that uh, David... Again brings the psalm. Then on that day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. And then in verse number 36 of 1 Chronicles 16, it says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. You've got the same in the Psalm 106. And you've got the very same thing in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. You have the account in verse number 6. At the end of a doxology from John. And have made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the reading of God's word is followed by the amen. The singing of God's praise is followed by the amen. All I want you to appreciate again is that when God's people met together here in Nehemiah chapter 8, they were not simply observing the worship. They were coming together and in united form, they were expressing audibly their agreement with what was being said. They were not embarrassed to say, Amen. And to affirm that what they heard was of God. It was true and therefore the truth is reflected in agreement with the audible Amen. Of course, when the Lord teaches the disciples to pray, he does not teach the disciples to pray individually. Give me this day my daily bread. It's a corporate prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And the prayer ends again with the amen. And so, I'm just simply encouraging you. As we meet together in God's house, you must examine your heart to make sure that you're not simply going to come here and observe a great spectacle and sit under some good preaching, but you yourselves are going to determine in your heart, is what is being sang and prayed and preached, is it true? And if it is, I'm going to make sure that I can agree with it and say amen. As part of your public affirmation of being in agreement with the worship of God in this place. You've also got another thing, and that is back in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have the fact that they acknowledge their dependence upon the Lord. You have that again in verse number 6. All the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. Now if we have lost the corporate Amen to the Anglicans, 
Well, we've certainly lost the posture and worship to the charismatics. And again, I'm cautious here. I understand that there is much in terms of public expression that is for show. It is to draw attention to yourselves. It is not for the honor of God. Having said that, when God's people are smitten by the word of God and their hearts are moved, then there will be visible outward signs of that. It may not be lifting up hands, but there may be tears. There may be a bowing of the head in the pew after preaching. And since much we can't lift our heads, a recognition that we're falling so far short of God's word and God's glory. See, when our hearts are dealt with, then there is this external action. There is the amen. There is also this lifting the hands that indicates, indicates dependence upon God. It's associated with, with prayer. The, the Psalm 134, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. But the Psalm 141, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And thus, this lifting of the hands is an outward expression of an internal reality. The outward expression without the internal is hypocrisy. But the outward expression based upon the internal reality of our need of God is indeed honouring to God. And so the men are commanded to pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2, lifting up holy hands. Not hypocritical hands, but holy hands. Without wrath and doubting. But again, the point I'm making is not the external form. It's not the loud amen. It's not the lifting of the hands. It's just simply to challenge our souls that we make sure that when we worship that we are not simply spectators. But that we ourselves are engaged in the worship of God. In agreement, in dependence, and also in contrition. Look again at verse number 6 of Nehemiah. Yet, and this, this will close. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In the word of God, the hands are lifted as the faces bowed to the ground. These things come together. They come together in humility and recognition that without God, we're nothing. And our attitude in the presence of God is one of reverence and fear. God is pleased to bless us when we recognize our state before him. When we recognize that we're sinners saved by grace. And we come humbly in his presence, in holy fear, and worship his name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.